Welcome to High Country, Politics in the American West. My name is Sean Diller. Regular listeners might know me from Heartland Pods talking politics every Monday. Support this show and all the work in the Heartland Pod universe by going to heartlandpod.com and clicking the link for Patreon. Or go to patreon.com slash heartlandpod to sign up. Membership starts at $1 a month. No matter the level you choose, your membership helps us create these independent shows as we work together to change the conversation. All right, let's get into it. Frisch with cash. Republican United States Representative Lauren Boebert has consistently ranked as one of Colorado's top congressional fundraisers since her election in 2020, raking in small-dollar contributions from a national network of grassroots conservative donors. But in her bid to win a third term next year, she may have to overcome an even stronger fundraising effort by her likely Democratic challenger. Adam Frisch, a former Aspen City Council member who lost to Boebert by just 546 votes in the 2022 election, raised more than $1.7 million in the first quarter of 2023 more than double the amount Bobert raised in the same period, according to Federal Election Commission disclosures. First said in a statement, I'm honored to be receiving the support of so many hardworking Colorado families. Bobert's fundraising numbers reaffirm that her days in Congress are numbered because she continues to ignore the needs of her district and instead prioritizes being a leader of the angertainment industry. If Bobert continues to trail Frisch in fundraising, it would be the first time the far-right representative has been at a financial disadvantage since her successful 2020 primary challenge against five-term GOP representatives Representative Scott Tipton. Bobert unseated Tipton despite raising just $133,000 to nearly a million raised by Tipton in the first half of 2020. In her bid for re-election last year, Bobert raised nearly $8 million, by far the highest total of any of Colorado's United States House candidates. Frisch, who narrowly won a three-way Democratic primary with 42% of the vote last year, raised $4.4 million from donors and supplemented that with over $2.2 million in personal loans to his campaign. Bobert was widely projected to win re-election by a comfortable margin in 2022, and neither Republicans nor Democrats spent heavily through super PACs to influence the 3rd District race. But after Frisch's unexpectedly strong performance in a race that triggered Colorado's first congressional recount in 20 years, the stage is set for a blockbuster rematch in 2024. Earlier this month, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee included the 3rd District, which encompasses most of Colorado's western slope as well as Pueblo County, on its list of 2024 targets. A poll released by a progressive group last week showed Frisch and Boebert tied at 45% support among likely voters. In what promises to be an unusually high-profile congressional race, both Boebert and Frisch continue to rely on contributions from out-of-state donors. About 63% of Boebert's itemized donations in the first quarter came from contributors outside of Colorado. For Frisch, the figure was 57%. In other U.S. House districts, Democratic Representative Yadira Caraveo of Thornton, who narrowly defeated Republican State Senator Barbara Kirkmeyer as the first representative of Colorado's new 8th district last year, reported raising $339,307 so far for 2024. Democratic Representative Brittany Pedersen of Arvada, who won the race to succeed longtime former Representative Ed Perlmutter in Colorado's 7th district, reported raising $218,000. No Republicans have filed to run in the 7th or 8th district so far. Carrie Lake holds wide lead in new Arizona GOP Senate primary poll. A poll released by JL Partners and shared with The Hill found former gubernatorial candidate and incessant Trump acolyte Carrie Lake receiving 38% support among registered Republican and undeclared voters. Lake was followed next by the primary opponent she bested in last year's Republican gubernatorial primary, Karen Robeson, who came in with just 10% support. Penal County Sheriff Mark Lamb was third at 8%, followed by former Arizona Senate candidate Blake Masters with 7%. Former State Attorney General candidate Abe Hamada registered just 4% support. 29% said they're undecided. 
One GOP strategist who requested anonymity to speak candidly said if Carrie Lake decides to run, it's clear she's not only the front runner, but will run away with the nomination. The GOP establishment would be smart to get behind her right away so we can win Arizona. I think this particular GOP strategist might be more interested in getting Carrie Lake to hire them than helping Republicans win Arizona, but that's just me. The polling comes as Senator Kirsten Sinema, who recently left the Democratic Party to become an independent, has not yet formally announced whether she'll run for re-election, though the Wall Street Journal reported earlier this month that she's gearing up for another run. Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego has announced a run on the Democratic side, reporting a fundraising haul of $3.7 million in this year's first quarter, about 75% more than Senator Sinema's $2.1 million. The GOP poll of Senate candidates also found Donald Trump leading Ron DeSantis in Arizona's presidential primary by more than 20 points. Support this show and all of the work in the Heartland Pod universe by going to heartlandpod.com and clicking the Patreon link to sign up. Membership starts at $1 per month and goes up from there with extra shows and special access at the higher levels. Heartlandpod.com, click the Patreon link, or just go to Patreon and search for the Heartland Pod. No matter the level you choose, your membership helps us create these independent shows as we work together to change the conversation. And now, back to the show. Colorado Governor Jared Polis thinks density is the magic bullet for high housing costs. Is he right? In the nearly hour-long press conference unveiling his sweeping land use reform bill, Governor Jared Polis and other supporters used the word affordable more than three dozen times. Polis and others promised the bill would lower housing costs around the state by cutting local regulations and allowing developers to build more townhomes and multiplexes in areas currently restricted to single-family homes only. The claim that more building will lead to cheaper rents and lower home prices is explicitly made throughout the 105-page bill. But is it true? And how did sprawl get so unaffordable anyway? CPR News read through research papers and spoke with academics to try to answer those questions. First, Local governments in Colorado have long preferred single-family homes. In the early 1900s, the federal government and localities like Denver began to embrace zoning to create a better arranged, more orderly city and protect property values by explicitly separating residential areas from industrial and commercial development. Denver's first zoning code, adopted in 1925, codified the city's preference for single-family homes by making them the only type of housing allowed in most residential areas. A 1929 city plan called Denver a city of one-family homes and warned of the density of East Coast cities like New York, saying it was throttling itself to death. Colorado planners laid out dream cities like Broomfield with meandering streets that conformed to the natural landscape and offered mountain vistas. But by the 1970s, the price of this type of growth was becoming clear. A landmark 1974 federally sponsored study called The Cost of Sprawl found the land, pavement, and utilities needed for suburbs and exurbs made them the most expensive form of residential development. But in spite of its costs, local governments in the Denver region have continued to embrace sprawl. By 2021, about 80% of land zoned for residences only allowed single-family homes, according to research led by Carrie McCarrowicz, associate professor and chair of the University of Colorado Denver's Urban and Regional Planning Department. Research shows that middle-type housing, two- to nine-unit residences, roughly similar to what the new bill would allow, accounted for just 2.2% of housing permits issued between 2005 and 2020 in the Denver metro. Multifamily housing also tends to be cheaper than single-family homes in the same community because they're often smaller and they make more efficient use of costly land and existing infrastructure. Every Denver metro county has a shortage of small homes and an excess supply of large homes in relation to each county's demographics, according to the research. 
So will more housing units and higher density help? The new bill would force many local governments in Colorado to allow multifamily housing, from townhomes to multiplexes up to six units, and accessory dwelling units, often called mother-in-law suites, in all residential zones. The Colorado Municipal League, which represents many of the state's cities and opposes the bill, said the idea that more housing will cause a market-based decline in housing costs is speculative. But research suggests there's a direct connection between the two. A 2018 review of studies from the New York University Furman Center said there's a considerable body of empirical research showing that less restrictive land use regulation is associated with lower housing prices. One study in Massachusetts found that increases in minimum lot sizes, a precursor to more sprawling development, were followed by significant housing price increases. Another, using data from 100 cities in Florida, found that putting in more restrictive development regulations decreased land prices, but increased home prices. One study directly linked restrictive local land use regulations to an increase in rates of homelessness. A 2021 UCLA research review found strong evidence that building new market rate apartments slows down rent increases for nearby existing housing, helping to keep neighborhoods more affordable. Emily Hamilton, senior research fellow at George Mason University, cited that cities like Houston, Texas, with less restrictive rules on housing, tend to be cheaper. They're making small lot, single family construction possible on a scale not seen anywhere else in the country. And they permit tons of multifamily housing, Hamilton said. For my part, I've said before that I support repealing the statewide ban on rent control at the local level. I think the problem of high rents can be directly addressed with rent control and that other solutions have a way bigger cost and way longer time horizon for bringing housing costs down. But Governor Polis has said he would not support a repeal of the rent control ban. And so I guess this is his solution, knowing that the cost of housing is one of the biggest issue on voters' minds in Colorado. Well, that's it for me. From Denver, I'm Sean Diller. Original reporting for the stories in today's show come from CPR News, The Hill, Associated Press, and Colorado Newsline. Thank you for listening. See you next time.